Okay, we come now to hearing the word of the Lord through the reading of Scripture. And as we continue our study in Hebrews, uh, we're reading our passage this morning from Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 13 through 20. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And our second passage this morning is from Romans chapter 4. And I'm reading verses 18 to 25. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Warren. Uh, Welcome. Welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. It's great to see you all here this morning. Uh, Welcome in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, To be a part of the church means to be a part of those whom God has called or assembled into his kingdom, into his family. Uh, We are in Hebrews chapter 6 and we're continuing to work through the word of God. Uh, This chapter is infamous. Uh, Last week, if you were here with us uh, and you're back, I'm glad to see you back uh, because uh, last week was a very strong warning and this week we have a very strong comfort. Uh, The theme that we've given to this series is seeing Jesus and that is kind of a metaphor in the New Testament for faith. We perceive things spiritually that we may not be able to see yet physically. And in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Hebrews, we, we are told that we see Jesus by faith. 
And that's really important. Uh, as we come to this text, we're going to see that seeing Jesus allows us to endure in hope. We're continuing on this journey of faith, but we're doing it in a way where we endure in hope. We, we wait, but it's not just a passive waiting like you've you know, taken your, your number at the ticket counter and you're waiting for your number to be called. It's, it's a waiting and enduring, uh, a taking the strain, a holding, if you will, a holding on in hope. Last week, we looked at uh, 5, 11 to 6, 12, and we saw there were sort of three expectations for us uh, to show that our faith is genuine. The expectation is that we will mature, we will grow. Uh, if our faith is genuine, we will also persevere. We will overcome, we'll make it to the end. And the expression of that faith along the way means we will serve. We'll, we'll honor one another because we honor God and we honor his name. But the big question I want to ask this morning is how do we hope when it doesn't make sense? <laughs> How do we hope when it doesn't make sense? Can you think of a time in your life when you're trying to put the pieces together and it doesn't quite seem to fit? Maybe you feel like God called you in a particular direction to a particular lifestyle or to a particular uh, place and, and, and things aren't seeming to line up. Maybe you feel that God has given you this great vision and this great plan only to suddenly be hit with a new diagnosis. Maybe you had these, these, these grand visions of what it would be like to serve God and to know God, to be a part of his kingdom, but you find yourself in the midst of affliction. Can we relate? The big question is, how do we hope when it doesn't make sense? Now, this is important because the simple truth is that faith cannot endure without hope. Your faith won't last if you don't have hope. Hope, that positive expectation. I saw a quote from Miroslav Volf this week. He's a theologian. I've said it to some of you already. It's really stuck with me all week. He said, if anxiety is the anticipation of fear, right? Not the experience of fear, but the anticipation of fear. Then hope is the anticipation of joy. That sense of expectation, that that that. It's going to be well. It's going to be good. If we don't have that hope, our faith is going to wither and weaken and strain. The big idea this morning is that God secures our hope to his word. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. God secures our hope to his word. Now, if this is true, it means you can rule out a whole lot of other things. This means your hope is not dependent on how you feel. It means your hope is not dependent on what you understand. It means your hope is not dependent on the people in your life, in the funds in your bank account, in the path that you are trying to walk. If your hope is secured in God and in his word, then it is entirely settled outside of you. All that matters is that you have that hope. But the certainty of it, the grounding of it, the validity of it is settled. I shared this in our family service. Uh, when, growing up, I, I really 
struggled to fly. Uh, in America, you, you sort of fly a lot, even just take an hour flight here, two hour flight there. You do a lot of flying in America. And I was really struggled. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Is I get in the plane and, and, and suddenly I feel like I'm, I'm at my death point, you know? <laughs> I, I put the seatbelt buckle on and I'm thinking, this might be the end of my life. Now, some of you think this is a great opportunity for a nap. I wish I was like that, okay? Uh, it's gotten a lot better, but early on, I really, really struggled with this. And so I felt like every time I got on a plane, I was trying to sort of repeat the conversion experience, okay? Right? And, 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 and I'm trying to say, okay, all right, I'm going through, you know, I'm, I'm sort of scrolling through my life. Is there anything I haven't asked forgiveness for? Is there anything that I don't, you know, any sort of outstanding things that I need to settle with God? Or is he mad at me about this? And, and it's amazing how quickly that came to mind when I got on the plane and how quickly it left my mind when I got off the plane, right? But there's this sort of moment of existential crisis. And... And I'm going to tell you a story uh, that's a bit embarrassing, and you may, you may conclude all sorts of things from it. Uh, you may, may give you plenty of conversation for lunchtime or psychoanalysis, but, but I think you'll see the point I'm trying to make. Uh, being so unsettled, I'll never forget, we were on a flight, a short flight from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. It only takes about an hour and a quarter. And I got on the plane, uh, it was a stopover in Las Vegas, and... I'm on the plane, I'm by myself, and suddenly the captain comes on and he says, um, in a very calm voice, you know, hey, sorry folks, we're just going to have to, we're just going to have to divert the plane. Um, you know, it turns out we have a, a leak of pure oxygen in, in the cockpit, and as you know, that's, that's highly combustible. So we're just going to make a pit stop, and we're just going to land, so we'll, we'll be landing very shortly. And he is so nonchalant and cavalier, and I am like, oh no, my number's been called. And, and my immediate thought at the time was, as I was thinking about my faith, was how immature is my faith? I haven't told anybody about the good news. And in my very immature, childish way of thinking about the Lord and his love, I thought, oh, this is God punishing me for not being vocal about my faith. And so I became an instant evangelist. I would love to tell you it was because I cared so much about my neighbors. That's a lie. I was fearing and panicking for my own soul. I turned to my neighbor and I ran this woman through the four spiritual laws. When I mean, we did laps around the Romans road, right? We're going so fast. I, I am witnessing so straight, so direct, so hard, right? Now, I, I really hope she'd listen to what I was saying, and I, I, you know, I would love to say again that, that it was motivated by sincere love for them, but the truth is, I was unsure. I was unsure about, about my hope. What, what could I lean on? How could I know for certain that God was going to accept me and receive me? My hope felt tenuous. I saw the line, but I didn't see where it attached. But it was amazing when the landing gear came down and I touched, we touched the runway. It was amazing how everything changed. You know, suddenly I wasn't just hurtling through aerospace. <laughs> suddenly I was back. I was grounded. I landed. And in landing, I felt secure. Even though the plane hadn't stopped, you know, the landing gear comes down. But as soon as you make contact 
as soon as those wheels make contact, for me, there was this sense of, oh, I've arrived. A long illustration. All to say, God secures our hope not to our performance, not to our service, not to our ministry, not to our feelings, not to our emotions, not to our relationship. God secures our hope to his word. And that is how we know it's secure. And that's going to be the motivation to press on. What we're going to see today is that seeing Jesus, when you, when you can actually by faith apprehend and comprehend what he has done and where he is now and what his purpose and his role in his ministry is now, that will drown your soul's distress in a sea of peace. What a wonderful image. All of us experience turmoil. All of us experience distress. Some of us, it's the affliction of depression or others, it's anxiety. For some, it's just this gnawing sense of purposelessness. But all of that seems to be flooded or drowned out in a sea of peace when we comprehend that our hope is not merely hurtling through space, but our hope has touched down. It's made contact in the Holy of Holies because Jesus is there. Our confidence as Christians rests in that. Now, in terms of an overview today, 6.13 to 20, it encourages the hearer to ground their faith in the certainty of God's word. And he's going to show this by looking at three divine utterances. He's going to sort of look at three ways that God has spoken. And one deals with the past, a, a prior promise that God made to Abraham, an example for us in verses 13 to 15. The second has to do with a very present reality, which is a binding oath that God has taken. It's binding and it abides currently right now. And finally, a divine utterance about the future, and that is that God has made a permanent appointment of Jesus Christ as our high priest. That's sort of the overview of how this text breaks down. But for the purposes of this message, I want you to see that the certainty of our hope rests firmly on God's promise, which is, un, which is supported, excuse me, by three unshakable pillars. Sort of these three unshakable pillars that are upholding the certainty of God's promise. The first pillar is God's name. The second pillar is God's character. And finally, the third pillar is God's mediator or God's priest, Jesus Christ himself. These three pillars hold our hope firm and secure. As if they were three sort of prongs in a grappling hook. Or three supports that are firmly lodged. With that, let's pray and let's ask God to minister to us this morning. Heavenly Father, in a world full of distraction and doubt and desire, Lord, we come to you now and we ask that you would take all those things away, that you would settle our hearts and minds so that we could speak and hear and meditate, Lord, that we can reflect upon the things that you have said to us. Father, we pray that, that there would be a joy and a rest that comes from hearing your word. Lord, would you bless your gathered saints here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So the first support to this promise is God's name. God's name. We're going to look here at verses 13 to 15. I'm try something a little bit different. Uh, Pastor Chris showed me how to do this. We'll see if I can actually get away with it here. Uh, oops. 
together. I'm going to try to mark this up as we go. All right, so we read in verse 13 that God made a promise to Abraham. Now, this is grounded based on what God had said, excuse me, what the writer said in chapter 6, verse 12. The last thing he said after that whole warning section, the last thing he said was, he said, don't be lazy, but imitate, imitate people with a patient faith. People like Abraham. So that's the exhortation. The exhortation is to keep living the life of faith, to look at other people who've done that journey of faith and to keep living that out. That's what he wants of his listeners and that's what God wants of us, to continue to persevere in faith. It's what, one of the key themes of this entire book. So these verses, verses 13 to 20, are going to, to, to really give the basis for which we should apply that instruction. Why should we imitate people of faith? Why should we continue to endure in hope? We should do it because God's promise is certain. And so the first kind of premise in that, the first link in that is verses 13 to 15. He's going to say, you're going to imitate somebody like Abraham. Let's see what happened in his case. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. He swore by himself. Now, this is dealing with oaths, and he's saying God makes a promise, and the promise should be good enough to stand. He told Abraham multiple times that he would bless him and that he would, he would make him a father of many nations. You may recall this. He said, I'll bless you, I'll multiply you. He told it to Abraham when he first left Ur of the Chaldeans. He told it to Abraham later on. When Abraham was on the move, he'd separated from Lot. And God said, I'm your shield and your very great reward, Abraham. Abraham said, how? I don't even have, a, I don't even have an heir. And God gave the promise again. But this reference here, this reference here, in verse 14, where he says, I will surely bless you, and I will give you many descendants. This goes back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. This section right here. In Genesis chapter 2, 22, verse 17, God reiterates the promise a third time, and in reiterating the promise, he swears an oath by his name. Now, the timing of this is is fascinating. If you're following in the book of Genesis, the timing of this oath comes after Abraham passed the test and was willing to offer his son Isaac. God said, offer up your son, your only son. Isaac was the child of promise. And God intervened. He said, Abram, don't go through with it. You've passed the test. You trust me. And after that, he reiterated the promise, but he said, I swear by myself. And then the example here, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. This argument is going to be unpacked for us in the next couple of verses. But the timing, again, is so intriguing. And we see here a pattern. God making a promise, people having to wait in faith, to endure in faith, to receive that promise, but then God coming good on that promise. And this example in the life of Abraham is meant to say, why does God need to apply his name to this? 
he's doing it as an act of mercy. God is saying, who I am and who I stand for stands behind my word. What a wonderful comfort. And so God is going to affirm our hope by swearing by his name. God affirms our hope by swearing by his name. This is what happens in Psalm 110, verse 4, where we are told that Jesus would be a priest. The Messiah is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But this is the example, this is the pattern for us. The second thing that stands as a pillar supporting the hope that we have is God's character. And here we see that God assures us he cannot go back on his word. So Abraham had that example of God having to repeat the promise over and over, but ultimately saying, I swear an oath, I put my name on this promise. Trust me, Abraham. And Abraham eventually saw God's promises fulfilled. Now the writer is going to reason forward and he's going to say, not only does our hope rest in God's name and who he, on, on, on who he identifies himself to be, but our hope rests upon God's character and what his desire and, on his, and his, uh, his desire and his will is. Look at verse 16 and 17. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. We've all been in the playground, right? You've been on the playground in the schoolyard and little Tommy says, hey, I like lollies better than chocolate. And Susie says, no, chocolate's better than lollies. And they go back and forth, no, but I'm right. No, but I'm right. No, but I'm right. And then Tommy finally says, I swear by all the video games in my cabinet. <laughs> I swear by all the Legos in my cupboard that lollies are better than chocolate. And anyone who's watching is meant to say, oh, whoa. He must really mean that. The idea is you swear by something greater. If you're called into court and you have to testify or make an appearance as a witness, when you do that, you are, you, you are asked to often put your hand on the Bible or you, you, you swear by the flag or the governor or the king, the queen. I don't know what they do here. And you say, I pledge to tell the truth, nothing but the truth. The idea is that it's not just your word that's saying it, but you are calling on a higher authority. In the Old Testament, God told his people to take oaths in his name. There's a command not to use his name in vain, but they were allowed to take oaths in his name. They're supposed to say, as the Lord lives. And so the idea was, in, if you're trying to prove something in a matter, you could call on the Lord and you could say, as the Lord lives, and he sees and knows and understands everything. As the Lord lives, I proclaim this to be true. And the implication was, if you were false, God would deal with you. And so it was meant to be a comfort and an assurance in that. Jesus, by the time they got to his day, they were abusing that whole pattern of oaths. And so Jesus said, look, the basic principle is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop taking oaths. But this hasn't stopped God from taking oaths. He's trying to settle the end of an argument. Now, the problem is, if you're going to swear by something that's greater than you are, a power that's bigger than you are, someone who has more capacity, more wealth, more, more knowledge and insight, who has more capacity, wealth, knowledge, or insight than our creator? Nobody does. 
It's impossible for God to swear by a greater authority. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Now this reference goes back to Psalm 110, verse 4. Where Jesus, excuse me, where, where God says, you are a priest forever. I swear by myself, you're a priest forever. According to Melchizedek. God takes an oath. He took an oath with Abraham. He took an oath with the wilderness generation that they would never enter into his rest. And he took an oath when he called the forever priest. The priest who would be in the order of Melchizedek. He took an oath to that promise. You are a king forever. King and priest. What this means is that God wants us to be absolutely certain that Jesus' job is not going to change. His role is not going to change. You ever had that experience? You come back from summer holidays and you're, you know, your favorite coworkers moved on? You, you get back to school and that teacher that you really loved and enjoyed and appreciated, suddenly they switch schools, different job? You're disappointed, like, oh man. I really, I really like that person. <laughs> Jesus is never going to change his job. He is never going to cease to be a ruling, reigning, mediating king priest forever. And God, his appointment, his, his word is enough to say that. But the fact that he swore an oath to it as well which was completely unnecessary, was done so that you and I would never doubt. That you and I would be so certain. Now I want you to notice a couple things here. Look, look here where, where the writer says the unchanging nature of his purpose was clear to the heirs. This is legal language that has to do with, has to do with the changing of a will. And everyone knew that while you were still living, you could change the will. You could say, well, actually, I'm not going to give, you know, a third of my estate to that son. I don't think they're responsible anymore. <laughs> this was common practice in that day. The will could be changed on the air. But here the point is that this will, <laughs> this inheritance that is going to the saints, to the believers, to those who belong to Jesus Christ, it's not going to be changed. You're not going to be written out of the will. You're not going to get to heaven and find, oh, you were reading, uh, you were reading the old revelation and the new revelation has come and the new revelation says you don't actually get your sins forgiven. You know, the new revelation says it depends on how much money you tithe to your church and how many hours you did of volunteering. That's how you get into heaven. No, not going to happen. The basis of my standing and your standing and how we appear before God is entirely secure and is entirely grounded in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You will be in heaven for eternity, not on your own merit, but on the Son's merit, on what he has accomplished for you. And that ought to make you sit back very comfortably in your seat. If you are relying on him.
If your trust is in him, you're set. The will's not going to be changed. But this is a present reality. He explains it here in verse 18. God did this. Now note here, this language here, God did this so that, that's purpose language. God did this so that. This is telling you God's intent. Here's his intent. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Brothers and sisters, this is God's whole purpose right there. That you would be greatly encouraged. That you would have strong encouragement. That there would be something upholding you. You're not floating through life on this ethereal thing called faith that is totally abstract and has no basis in reality, but it's purely the, the, the product of you rubbing your, your fingers together and, and somehow thinking that maybe this whole Christianity thing is real. That is what so many people think about the gospel, but it couldn't be farther from the truth. The gospel is grounded in historical reality, a fulfillment of the things that God has said from the beginning, the very same God who created us, who formed us in his image for his purposes that we may know him. And when that God sent his son to die in our place, he resolved so much. He resolved our rebellion. He resolved the punishment that we were due. He resolved the, the sin that stood against us and, and, and the wrath that that sin had been calling down. He also reversed the curse. He reversed this, this reality of death just reigning over us. If the stakes are high, it's because the hope is high. The hope is real. Now, you may say, what are these two unchangeable things? There's a little bit of discussion about it, but you could probably say the two unchangeable things, most people would agree, the two unchangeable things are the oath, excuse me, the promise, oops, we're all learning here. <laughs> the promise That's one, and the oath is the other. Those are the two unchangeable things. The promise is what God has set forth, and when God speaks, he doesn't lie. He only tells the truth. You can bank on that. But the second thing was only given for our assurance, and it was an oath. Who is this for? This is an important question. Who is this for? It's for those who have fled to take hold of the hope set before them. The word flee there means to seek refuge. You can seek refuge in a place. You can also seek refuge in a person. 
So this certain hope is for people who have fled to take refuge. You may recall if you've been reading in the Old Testament, particularly in in the laws, if you had committed a murder, uh, what we might call a manslaughter, an unintentional manslaughter, justice said that you deserve to die. But God in his mercy said you could flee to a particular city of refuge. You could go to a city of refuge and you could stay there. And as long as you stayed in the city of refuge, the person who was responsible to avenge your blood could not come and kill you. The wrath couldn't touch you. That's what it said. Now, me, as I'm reading this as a, as a younger Christian, I'm thinking, for how long? Like, how long do you have to live there? Do you live there like a week, a month? For how long? Did you know God actually answered that statement? He said how long they could live in the city of refuge. The person was not allowed to come and seek revenge as long as the current high priest remained in place. Isn't that interesting? The person was allowed to live in the city of refuge for the duration of the term of the current high priest. I hope you're hearing echoes of something similar here. We who have fled for refuge, we are fleeing to Mount Zion, we're fleeing to the kingdom of God, we're fleeing this world, we're fleeing towards the sanctuary of God in Christ. How long? As long as the high priest lives. As long as that high priest has been appointed. How long has this priest been appointed? Forever. Oh, that's good news. God's character assures us that he cannot go back on his word. His desire is for you to be secure, secure in your hope. God is very honest. Jesus said to us, you will have trouble in the world. Being a Christian does not exempt you from trouble. Not at all. But, but don't confuse the trouble you're in with the certainty of your hope. Because the hope is completely legitimate, completely secure, completely firm and grounded. But how often as Christians do we get confused because the trouble we're in clouds our vision and we say, I don't, the hope must not be real. So, the certainty of our hope rests on God's name. It rests on his character. Ultimately, though, it rests on God's mediator, Jesus Christ. And we see here that Jesus is our hope because he has a permanent post. Verses 19 and 20. Ultimately, it's the content of that promise. The permanent appointment of Jesus Christ to be your mediator and priest. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's what has happened. Now, we're talking here about hope. 
That's what we're talking about. But what you need to notice is how the image changes. We have three different images at play here. We have the image of an anchor. That's one image. We have the image of a sanctuary. That's the second image. And finally, we have the image of a forerunner. Three different metaphors. So if you're trying to, if you're trying to work out, what's hope doing here? What, what, what is he saying about hope? He's saying a lot. A lot in a very short amount of space, okay? But before we talk about what it means that hope is an anchor and where the hope goes and what it means to be a forerunner, do not miss this. We have it. We have this hope. We currently grasp it. We currently possess it. It is ours. And this is really important in the language of Hebrews because in Hebrews, there's a lot of, there's a lot of forward thinking. There's a lot of reasoning and encouragement about pressing on and about entering in, about obtaining or, or attaining. So when the author of Hebrews comes along and says, and this is what you have right now, we should sit up and pay attention to that. Because that's speaking to our current reality. Yes, he wants us to move forward. Yes, he wants us to press on. But what do we have right now? We have this hope. That's important. Now I want to talk about these three things. The anchor, the sanctuary, and the forerunner. We have this hope as an anchor. Anchor is a much, you know, was a common metaphor back then. It's, it's a metaphor that's common today. The anchor goes into the ground. I'm sorry, into the water. The anchor drops down in the water, it, it lodges and it keeps the boat secure and firm. It's this big heavy piece with hooks on the end, we think we all know what an anchor is. And the anchor is meant to secure you, to, to moor you. And this is the image that the writer's been using, this image of being secure and being moored. He said, we don't want you to drift. We want you to be firm and fixed and steadfast. Your hope is going to do that. If your hope is real, it will keep you. The waves and the wind may, may, may blow you this way, may blow you that way, but if you are anchored, if your hope is real, then it anchors you and you won't be blown out to sea. You may bob up and down. <laughs> you may get a bit seasick, but you will not be moved off course. The anchor is firm and secure. The word firm there implies a, a, a certainty, a mental certainty. It's what Luke uses when he introduces his gospel. And he says, I want you to be certain of these things. Sanctuary refers to the place where God would receive the sacrifice and the offering. The holy of holies, the, the ark of the covenant. There, there is the inner place. And it was protected by two curtains. The outer curtain kept you from the holy place. And then there was a second curtain within, which was keeping you from the holy of holies. The point is the priest was only allowed to go there once a year on one particular day. And while he was there, he would make atonement. He would make sacrifices. He would procure the forgiveness and the favor for the people. And the priest did this. So our hope, 
our hope has this securing and this stabilizing, this stabilizing force to it. Our hope goes into a certain place. It, this is the point of attachment. And the point of attachment is the very presence of God himself. But then in 20, the metaphor shifts not to this sort of simple idea that, that your, your hope is attached at this place, but the hope becomes personified in verse 20. Oops, excuse me. Lost my place. Where did we go? Yes, come to the ministry team leader summit. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, whoever's running that back there. Um, Jesus, our forerunner, the hope begins to become personified in verse 20, and he's called our forerunner. A forerunner implies uh, a military, a military illustration, and a racing analogy. So a forerunner could be described as the person who breaks away from the pack and, and is the first one to cross the finish line. The forerunner can also describe the person, if you were starting a military campaign, you would send in the advanced scout or the force first. The point is Jesus has gone ahead of us. And it's his going ahead of us is what makes us secure. It's what keeps our hope in place. This has been described and grounded by many people. But I really liked what Luke Timothy Johnson said about Jesus' ministry of entering, entering the temple, entering into God's presence. He says, what Jesus is and does, he is and does for others. And he does this forever. Who Jesus is and what he does, he does for others. And he does this forever. You say, how do we know that? We know that because we're told here he has entered on our behalf. He entered on our behalf. I don't know about you, but I, I, I got this picture in my head early in my faith that, you know, Jesus ascending into heaven was sort of like him getting home from work, you know? Well, I did my job. It's time to go home, you know? Time to punch out, hang up the hard hat, <laughs> put the lunch pail on the counter. And so that was sort of my thought. Jesus, Jesus went to heaven because, well, I guess that's where he's from and He's done, he's resting, so he can stay there. But he is there for us. He's there for you and I. In chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Hebrews, we're told that a high priest is appointed for the humans. <laughs> God instituted this whole system of priests for people so that people could know him. Jesus entered into heaven not simply to go home or even to go to a throne to, to, to claim power, even though he, he is exalted to a throne, but he also went to heaven on our behalf and he is standing there forever for us. 
This is the true stabilization and the security that our souls need. Right now, Jesus is in heaven for us. He's been appointed a high priest so you could be here this morning. He's been appointed a high priest so that you could worship God, so that you could be brought back into relationship with him, so that you could have that hope. He actually loves you and cares about you. I can't say it enough. Don't judge the love of God based on how much your pastor loves you or how much your, your, your parents love you or, or how, how much other people love you. Don't judge the love of God on the basis of that. Judge the love of God on the basis of what he has done. And he gave his son that he would become a priest forever for you, that you would always have a mediator, that you would always have someone to stand in the gap, someone who could be your advocate before God. Someone who knew you and could relate to you, could empathize with your weaknesses, who would transform your humanity into his glory and would share the wealth of his inheritance with you. God did all that because he loves you. Jesus has been appointed a priest for us. He went there on our behalf. Again, as Johnson says, what he is and does, he is and does for others. And he does this forever. <laughs> There's not going to be a day in heaven where you can't go to Jesus. There's not going to be a day in heaven where, where his forgiveness is going to run out. Where God's going to say, well, I thought we would bring you here for a while and see how you went, but... It's not really working out, so I'm going to get rid of you. We can be confident that's never going to happen. And so in this way, Jesus is our hope because he has a permanent post. This language, it's, it's, it's not how we like to talk today, but I, but I hope you understand that what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to do is he's trying to dig down to the, to, to the nitty-gritty here and he's trying to show you, look, God made these promises to you. And these promises that he made to you are based on the, promise, the promised appointment that he gave to his son to be a priest forever. And he confirmed that promise with an oath. He bound himself to it. He did all this so that we wouldn't question the certainty of our hope. Just want to summarize in this way. Let's see if this works. We're given three encouragements to help us endure. If we're going to endure, we're going to we're going to we're going to walk this this walk of faith. We're going to continue we need an example, and, and Abraham is going to become an example of somebody who cast themselves entirely on the word of God. You may feel alone and isolated in what you're doing because of your faith, but let me tell you, you're not. You may be in the minority, but you're not alone. There's people who've gone before you who've walked this way. Imitate those people. 
Find your example. Find someone who's casting themselves entirely on the promise of God. Secondly, banish the doubt. Be assured totally of the hope that you have. That is not up for for debate. There's no wait and see. The only wait and see is, is that it's not here yet, but it is coming. And remember, your soul, your soul needs to have an anchor. So where are you going to choose to drop that anchor? If you use the anchor that God has provided in Jesus Christ, your soul will remain steadfast. Who are we following in our example? Are we really sure? If not, why not? Jesus walked down the mountain after he'd appeared in glory to the disciples. He got down the mountain and there was a man there who had a boy who was demon-possessed. And the man said, I took, this, I took my son to your disciples and I asked them to cast it out, but they couldn't. And then he says to Jesus, Basically, if you can do something about it, I'd appreciate it. (laughs) Jesus says, if. (laughs) If. (laughs) Like, like, like you're seriously wondering if I can do something about this? And then the man corrects himself. He says, says, I believe. I believe. Just, Just help my unbelief. And he heals the boy. You know, sometimes we need to be jarred by that. We're saying, God, if, if you do this, if you, and God's, if, of course I can, of course I will. But don't be discouraged because when he pulled the disciples aside later and and they said, you know, why couldn't we cast this out? He said, you know, this kind of demon can only be cast out through prayer. (laughs) Meaning they hadn't even thought to call, (laughs) to call on God. You see, it's really easy to ground our assurance in ourselves. The assurance is real, but it's in Christ. It's not in you. God secures our hope to his word. Let's pray. Father, would you stabilize our hearts and minds? May we be strengthened by grace, knowing that you love us and care for us. Knowing that Jesus has gone before us. May we follow after him. In his name we ask, amen.